Welcome to This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into an opportunity. I'm Vincent Herringer. Every week I talk to entrepreneurs, investors and experts about what they're doing to solve the climate crisis and get New Zealand down to zero emissions by 2050 or sooner. This Climate Business is brought to you by Podcasts New Zealand. Last week, we looked at the latest IPCC report, which contains a trove of insights and data from thousands of scientists, but could be summarized in this simple three-line verse. The world's getting hotter. Humans are to blame. It's not too late to change. So what will it take to change? Well, this week, we discussed the implications for business. Does the stark reality set out in that report change what's required of the business sector? Or does it simply reinforce what's already happening? How exactly is business both here and overseas responding to the need to decarbonize? And who are the leaders and laggards? So many questions. Well, to discuss this and other topics, I'm joined by Rod Oram, climate and business journalist and a columnist at Newsroom. Thanks for joining me, Rod. Oh, Cura Vincent. It's uh, great to be on. Thank you for inviting me. That's my pleasure. How is lockdown treating you? In, uh, I think you're still in Newmarket or Parnell somewhere? No, no, a little bit further east, slightly, Mission Bay. And um, mm. so it's, um, I do a lot of work from home anyway, so and that doesn't change. And um, uh, so lockdown's fine. Um, I'm out and about on bike rides and walks, uh, taking note of how vigorous the police checks are on Tamaki Drive. As to, <laughs> the, I, I, I offered to stop at a roadblock on my bike, <laughs> thinking that, Maybe they're checking everybody and they just wave me through. So I think they're only after vehicles. Um, and I, I will confess semi-publicly on your podcast that sometimes my definition of a neighborhood bike ride gets quite stretched uh, mm. as I um, uh, enjoy a long ride. Yes, well, a man of your vim and vigor could not be constrained to a five-kilometer radius, I'm sure. Are you uh, are you doing more competitive? Uh, well, sort of, you were doing sort of semi-competitive, and then uh, quite a lot of charitable rides, weren't you, for a while? Oh, I'm I'm always keen on the charitable ones. I've never really been competitive in the sense that stood any chance of um, uh, being successful riding hard against other people. Although I do have a strategy for the World Masters Games, I'm planning to only start. <laughs> to enter the World Master Games, Masters Games, when I'm in my um, mid-80s and um, gain some experience. And by the time I get into my mid-90s, I, I think I'm guaranteed a podium finish. Uh, so that, that's my strategy. <laughs> <laughs> Playing it by the numbers. Uh, we yeah, yeah. expect nothing less. Um, well, speaking of numbers, um, your latest two columns in Newsroom are excellent summaries of where business is at in regards to climate change and climate uh, mitigation, um, and quite damning, I think. And uh, you know, the question is: Is business doing enough to meet climate change, the climate challenge? And I think your answer is no. And and let's just break that down a bit. You start with a global benchmark uh, that's developed by an organisation called MSCI. It's already got too many acronyms, but there are more. Tell us what is the MSCI when it's at home. 
Um, originally, the name came from the founding members, which was Morgan Stanley, the U.S. investment bank, and Capital International, uh, which was mm-hmm. a data company. And um, so MSCI has been around for actually many decades now, um, and they do an awful lot of um, analytics of uh, stock markets and the rest. So they're famous particularly for their MSCI global indices. Um, so the report I was referring to in my column before last um, was, um, um, MSCI looking at what it calls its investable market, i.e. Um, all of the listed companies globally, which is 9,300, and then working out um, how large their emissions were and what that meant. So it turns out that the emissions of those companies, uh, it estimates, because some don't report them, um, um, is about 20%, almost 20% of um, human-induced emissions. So Mm. these 9,300 companies are very important players. Mm. So the next very interesting piece of the analysis was, okay, if they're um, consuming that much, generating that much carbon, if we look at how much carbon humanity has in its budget left that we can emit before we breach the one and a half degree uh, rise in temperature, how long does that budget last those companies? And and that's very straightforward science, which is widely used. In a sense, it's the same principle that our Climate Change Commission has used um, to to guide it in the constructions of its recommendations of New Zealand's carbon budgets that it puts the government. And so those companies um, on their current burn rate um, would hit that one and a half degree um, temperature rise or they would exhaust their commitment, you know, their share, fair share of the budget in just five years and eight months. This was based from July this year onwards. So in other words, out in 2007. And here's the, it is. Can I just add one other thing? Because the, the next piece of the analysis is really important because it shows what a phenomenal difference it is between one and a half degrees and two. So we could sort of say, oh, well, one and a half's a bit too hard. Let's take a chance on two, even though the uh, two degrees rise, even though the climate scientists tell us that at two degrees, uh, all bets are off. Um, well, so rather the science gets a lot more pessimistic uh, about yeah. how much damage you're doing. Well, if you look at the two degree budget, those country, those companies would run out of carbon in 21 years and five months. So that's how big the difference is in carbon budget. We think it's only half a degree centigrade. But if, if we take a chance on that extra half a degree, we're putting this phenomenal extra load of um, greenhouse gases in the atmosphere and thus creating that um, havoc um, in climate. It's effectively another 16 years of emissions before yeah. that, that um, two degrees budget is reached. But the report, uh, we'll go into uh, more detail about business in a second, but just back to the um, IPCC report. I took from my discussion last week and having read the report that there's almost like a resignation that we are indeed heading for a two degrees rise over pre-industrial levels. Am I understanding that wrong? Is 1.5 still an achievable goal? Yes, it is. And this is what um, the um, IPCC is saying. Uh, There were five um, scenarios um, in this 
uh, AR6 modeling, and only one of them um, keeps the temperature will actually go slightly over one and a half degrees on its modeling and then comes back down. But it's the only trajectory um, where the temperature starts to come back down at a reasonable level. Uh, all the others, even like the next one up, the temperature goes up very significantly. So that's how important one and a half degrees is. But in order to achieve that, the pace of change has to be phenomenal. Mm. across everything we do and so five years and eight months actually now five years and six months yeah. since it was published in july and and then this is you know the 9300 large you know stock market listed companies in the world and um but then if you think about that in terms of how businesses are responding generally, you find so many business strategies on climate um, pinned to two degrees centigrade because that's mm. easier to do. And, mm. and to me, that's the heart of the problem. Uh, the vast, vast majority of businesses are still thinking it's two degrees, still thinking there's plenty of time, still thinking there's lots of carbon we could emit. And all of those all of those premises are fundamentally wrong. Hmm. So we have a representative group that is responsible for a fair chunk of emissions, 20% of emissions. And uh, before we get into just a commentary on how those companies are performing, there, there's one more level of uh, kind of detail I think would be great for us to understand, and that is this scope one scope two and scope three emissions, which uh, account really describe where their emissions fall. Could you explain what scope one, two, and three mean? Yes, this is um, a universal um, categorization, which is very helpful. Scope one is a company's own emissions. Scope two are the energy, the emissions from the energy it buys in and consumes and thus generates emissions. And then scope three is its whole supply chain, its whole value chain, all the way from the emissions of its suppliers relevant to what it buys from them, and then all the way through to the consumers using the products it produces. And so um, obviously the oil companies, uh, almost all of them are focusing only on um, scope one and two and mm. ignoring all the emissions from their products, um, which is scope three. So uh, I, I'm interested in all three scopes, but the only honest approach is for a company to lock on and be deeply committed to reducing um, scopes one, two, and three, i.e. the emissions from the use of its products. I think a really good example is the automotive sector, which by itself, if you were just to account for the factories that produce cars and trucks, it's pretty minimal, their impact. But actually, if you take scope three, which is the the products that it produces and then get used by people like us, their emissions profile then balloons out to be huge. Absolutely. Yeah. Likewise, the um, oil and gas companies. So we have a large group of companies responsible for 20% of emissions that are, by the sound of it, committed to a unambitious target of, largely speaking, and some actually not at all, uh, to two degrees warming. And how many are committed to 
accounting for these scope three emissions at at the core of their reporting? Um, uh, I don't have that data to hand, but the Carbon Disclosure Project, or CDP as it simply calls itself these days, um, which is the great uh, database of company disclosures, uh, but also governments and municipalities and all sorts of other people um, have contributed that database um, would have those figures to hands. But if you look, for example, at the work that Climate Action Tracker, which is a consortium of climate science institutions um, around the world that um, track the response of um, governments and companies to climate. Um, mm. The Climate Action Tracker report on oil companies looks at only the top 10 um, uh, largest um, publicly listed oil companies in the world. Um, and only the first three, I think, of that 10, um, which is um, Total and um, the Italian oil company and uh, BP um, are measuring scope three and committed to reducing their customers' emissions. And with BP, that's very recent. It was a decision um, that they announced um, early this year. But the rest don't. Um, then you trail off very rapidly in the top 10 that gets you down to 10, which is ExxonMobil, um, which uh, are still dodging um, real reliability, uh, real responsibility um, that, you know, for example, Exxon is talking about, oh, in Houston, where we have all kinds of plants, um, we will capture all the CO2 emissions from our plants and um, use our pipeline network to collect it all up and put it somewhere else, presumably underground. Mm -hmm. Well, fine um, but still what about the emissions from all the products you're selling which is far mm. outweighs um, your own emissions uh, plus that technology is yet to be proven to exist uh, as we well know or at least at a commercial scale so overall these these reports that you've been looking into the state of business makes pretty pessimistic reading you would probably give these large businesses, which are re responsible for a large amount of emissions, you would probably give them a fail, given the imperative uh, that's before us. Am I, would that be a fair, a fair summary? Uh, no, because I would use a stronger word than fail. Um, I mean, yes, they palpably are not doing what they need to do. Um, but, the, the, you know, we have to drive home the message to them. Um, about how fundamentally wrong they are and how fundamentally damaging what they are doing is. So, um, yeah, and there is great urgency around all this. Mm. Having said that, um, you can look in almost any field of um, business and economic activity uh, where there are leaders. And I, I'm fascinated by all of them um, and, and also, all of them by type. So you will get um, completely new companies um, with some very new technology, which are, are trying to completely shatter the mold. And Tesla would be an example of that. But then you've also got, um, and this is in a sense rarer, you've got um, incumbent companies um, which have got the message and are acting very vigorously. And, and it's really interesting that car companies um, as a group are, um, as a single sector, are probably the, 
the best example of that. But even within that um, sector, you still get some interesting anomalies. So, for example, Toyota is betting very heavily on um, the future being hydrogen cars and light vehicles, not battery. Um, and uh, you know, I, I think they're wrong on that. I think where battery technology is going um, is going is going to get those cars there quicker to being clean. Whereas I think hydrogen, um, both in the production of the hydrogen and then the distribution of the hydrogen, um, is going to be problematic longer. Um, and also from a sheer energy point of view, um, it's far less efficient um, to create hydrogen and then um, have that in a fuel cell in a car to generate electricity because ultimately you're ending up with an electric car <laughs> when you're using hydrogen um, versus um, generating electricity very directly and putting it straight into the car. What you've just described highlights just how challenging this transition is. There are multiple elements to it. Bet betting on a particular technology is is one example of the, 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 cha of the challenge, but also protecting your current business of which shareholders and investors rely on for their returns. And so un unless you're a new business, as you've described, you know, the, the Teslas of this world, um, you really have to rebuild the plane as, as it's flying, as the, you know, as the analogy goes. Um, and I think no better example exists than Zed, which is uh, at the late the subject of your latest column, and and in in, in some ways, <clears throat> kind of represents all of the challenges we've just been talking about of uh, the urgent need to shift its activity and its impact to a different kind of business, whilst also having to account for uh, explain itself to its investors. So. Uh, you've done a bit of a dive into this. Maybe, maybe you could unpack that for us. Um, Zed, in some ways, should be a poster child of how to do it. Yes, and it's a, a it's an extremely um, interesting and classic example of of the sort of dynamics we've been talking about, and it's one hugely important to us here in New Zealand because um, the products it sells account for about ten percent of our emissions. So my um, it seems to me that they're the second largest emitter in the country uh, after Fonterra. So Z10% and Fonterra 20%. Mm. Um, and, um, and so again, this theme about they need to be responsible for their products and help their customers um, on the journey to get off those products as fast as possible. Our, our scope three is what we're, yep, we're talking absolutely. about. Yeah. Mm. Um, Z uh was and in many ways is and i hope will again be a very interesting company because as you remember the origins of it um the new zealand superannuation fund and um, infratil um went 50 50 on buying it from shell so it was the shells mm. downstream operations or all the way from a, a, um, a shareholding in the marsden point refinery down into the market and um zed always said um, in its newly created freedom, um, that it could respond differently from other sellers of um, petrol and diesel um, because it didn't have upstream assets, i.e. large um, oil and gas reserves it was trying to yeah. make some money on. Um, so it could be quite agnostic about what the energy future was for transport, and it would back the best bets and 
be leading in that trans transformation and I, and I always thought yep that's jolly good and um, you know go to it and the company is a very capable company in many respects I have a, a, a lot of um, give it a lot of credit for what it's done however if you look at um, the presentations it gave in July late July at its investors day presentation and those are online all the links are in my newsroom column um, there's about four hours of presentations there. Um, they spent 45 minutes of the four hours talking about clean energy and how they might get there. They spent 35 minutes talking about their convenience stores. And under the three-pillar strategy, the middle pillar is about um, a um, low-carbon future. The number one item at the top of the list under the low-carbon future is to grow the revenue of the convenience stores by $100 million. And um, that sort of gives you a, a flavor for where their heads are at. Um, and in fact, the two um, attempts they've made to invest in clean fuels um, have been, um, uh, uh, well, they're still going, so they might turn them around, um, but have been uh, very problematic to say the least and have, have mm. made essentially no progress. Does that not reinforce the point that solely focusing on managing a transition to a low carbon future actually does not do a service to the shareholders and to the employees and the, um, all the other beneficiaries of having a vibrant business. I mean, it's kind of, it, it is a bit of a cheap shot, don't you think, to um, talk about their convenience stores as if they don't matter, but actually they represent tens of millions of dollars in revenue and in profitability. So they're right to defend and focus on their convenience stores, don't you think? No, absolutely not. I think the convenience stores are um, a, a distraction. I think they're a crutch. Um, they see those profits as um, part of its low carbon future. But I would argue that if you don't deploy all of your capital and all of your energies on those clean fuels, you won't have a future and then you won't have customers stopping at your convenience store. Um, the classic example of that is they in invested money in Flick, um, the very adventurous um, uh, electricity retailer, which was um, had nifty systems to allow retail customers to access the wholesale market or buy electricity essentially at wholesale prices. Mm. Um, mm. And uh, Flick's been a, a disaster of a failure for them because Zed completely failed to see what everybody else knows is that the wholesale market um, serves the the gen tailors very well um, and makes them very profitable and makes it possible for them um, to um, thwart um, all ups, pretty much all upstart competition. Uh, and so um, when you get to electric cars, bet, and I speak from experience as an electric car owner for now five years, um, is the uh, you do all your charging at home or mm -hmm. where you, you go somewhere where there's some other things to do besides sitting in, in a, a petrol station forecourt and getting a coffee at the Z store inside. That would be bottom of my list of places I'd want to recharge my car <laughs> should I need to. Um, I, you know, I'd go to Sylvia Park and do some retail therapy um, where I have lots of options rather than just the Z retail store. So I know that um, if you talk to EV owners, one of the 
One of the great delights is never darkening the door of a petrol station again. There's the um, there's a defiance about it that sort of feeds the soul. Yeah, yes, but but going back, sort of getting out from underneath the mundane. Um, sorry, these are important parts of day to day life, particularly <laughs> into the future. Um, um, you've got to have that single minded focus, and the extra, the next problem is that. Um, Zed is pandering to its current shareholders um, who expect plump dividends apparently in perpetuity. So not only is it um, persuaded the other stakeholders in the or shareholders in the Marsden Point refinery to t- shut down the refinery in and to turn it into just an import terminal. And, you know, there are some rational arguments for doing that. But what that means is that um, significantly simplifies Zed as a fuel company. Um, it no longer needs to have people experienced at buying crude oil. It no longer needs to have um, lots of money tied up in the long supply chain from that crude oil to Marsden Point and then to the ultimately to the consumer. So it's going to um, reduce its costs, simplify its business, and return it was estimating it's going to um, free up $300 million of capital by the end of fiscal year 24, which is going to return to the shareholders. Well, hmm. you can keep doing that for a while, but in the, you eventually run out of things that you can simplify and sell and return the money to shareholders. Hmm. You could make the argument, well, okay, once the shareholders have the money, then they can decide what to do with it. Unfortunately, I'd have thought a large proportion of Zed shareholders are there for the dividends and not thinking about the future. And Mm. let me offer you a completely different uh, approach to this. And I'll just cite two companies. Once in a while, you'll get companies that know they need to make a very radical shift in what they do. And they need, they know they need to deploy all their cash flow for that. And therefore, they tell shareholders they're stopping dividends. And if you need dividends, then implicitly they're saying go elsewhere. But if you believe in what we're doing, stay here and we'll reward you. The two examples I would cite was Microsoft a good few years ago and obviously an international example and the warehouse. That was a very brave decision Stephen Tindall made now some years ago. Um, and it paid off for the warehouse. Zed Energy's got to be able to do the same thing because the clean energy challenges are so enormous. It needs to have single-minded focus on that whilst still selling us petrol and diesel, but trying to get us off petrol and diesel. So they're staring down the barrel of what is uh, an imminent threat and redoubling their efforts into convenience store and route trade, which is, you think, a little like shifting the chairs on the Titanic. Yep. Um, About 65% of um, Zed's retail um, um, revenue, that's not the the petrol side of it, it's what in the stores, um, is um, cigarettes and um, coffee. Um, it's proud of being the number one seller of takeaway coffee in New Zealand, beating McDonald's. Well, if McDonald's is your competitor, you aren't thinking about the clean energy transition. 
to what extent can you put the burden of responsibility of managing this transition onto the shareholders who who will be institution and mum and dad shareholders? You are asking them to uh, account for that twenty percent, uh, sorry, ten percent of emissions, and find a strategic path into a, a different kind of business and a different kind of economy. Is that the right place to put the responsibility? You essentially have um, two choices. Um, it's business or government. Uh, we consumers have little control over this, however much we might band together and um, clamor for more and different and better. Um, so if business isn't going to do it, then government would have to do it. Um, and whilst government is good at many things, I also think business is brilliant um, when it's um, focusing on the right things. So that's why I'm very much um, putting the responsibility on business. Now, mm. the thing about this is that not every company listed on the New Zealand Stock Exchange um, has to make as um, bigger shift as Z, mm. um, and therefore, if it commits to this, and if its existing shareholders decide that's not a journey for them, they can go elsewhere. But I believe there would be enough people who would be committed to Z, should it embark on that journey, that would more than make up for and be very patient and understanding and supportive shareholders if Z did that. Um, now, I, I don't... <laughs> normally discuss my stock picks <laughs> um, but i would be um i as a as a personal investor i would be um very um supportive of that insofar as i buy any petrol these days it's minimal um because our other car is a now a 17 year old hybrid um and but i buy from said um because i still have this residual hope um, that they are are more committed to this transition than the competitors mm. are in New Zealand. Well, the competitors are mobile. Well, that's an easy choice. ExxonMobil is one of the worst in all this. The other competitor, though, is interesting. It's BP. And as I said earlier, BP has committed to reducing scope three emissions of its customers. However, um, BP is a, ma a huge multinational, um, and um, it's, you know, the emperor's far away and over the hills um, and therefore it's hard to imagine bp new zealand being a very active player in all this um, and therefore whilst if you want to make a simple choice i'm going to get my petrol or diesel from a company that's most committed to all of this i go okay well that's bp but if i want to um support a company that um it can make a difference here that would be zed so those are the sort of consumer decisions that we can make. Um, mm -hmm. But unfortunately, each of us, even if you launch some great campaign around that, um, I'm, I'm not sure that would necessarily be um, sufficient in itself to persuade Z Energy to be um, the very powerful driver of um, clean, uh, towards clean energy that we have, we actually need it to be. That's so disappointing to hear. But moving on to other disappointments, the other large contributor, twice the size in terms of total emissions, is our uh, dairy sector and largely led by Fonterra. 
Are you seeing the kind of leadership in Fonterra required that would also manage this transition in the next five years and eight months, as you've described the time frame? Well, not just you, Morgan Stanley have described the time frame. In particular, methane is the issue there, I mean, carbon equivalent, I suppose. But uh, tell us about what you're seeing happen within the dairy sector that might, I don't know, give us any kind of confidence that our two largest emitters uh, are able to deal to this um, transition. Let me go back to the science on this um, with two United Nations reports. First of all, the most recent climate one, uh, which is assessment report six. And more forcefully than ever, it said that um, our emissions reduction challenge is so huge um, that we actually have to get far more serious about methane um, because methane is such a potent gas. um, And though it's short lived, um, during the existing life of the methane that you're putting up there today is the crucial time for us to be able to uh, rise to these towering challenges. The other um, United Nations report was out earlier in the year, and it's from the United Nations Environment Programme and what's known as the Clean Air Coalition. And uh, that was very forceful um, on the need to reduce methane emissions. Essentially, in the world, um, there's two large and one much smaller source. The two large ones are from the oil and gas industry, um, rather more from leaking pipelines and production facilities and the rest. And the other one is from farming. And that's a global problem. So um, rice paddy farmers um, in Japan are prodigious producers of methane. It's, mm. So the dairy industry here shouldn't feel picked on. Um, and the third <laughs> smaller one is... Um, um, from landfill um, with mm. things rotting in, in landfill. So it's very clear the and, and the pressure is really ramping up on the oil and gas industry about its fugitive methane emissions. Um, but the um, pressure is really increasing very rapidly on farming globally. And so that now brings us to New Zealand. So the um, Fonterra's perspective on this, oh, I, I'll just fill out the numbers, um, Fonterra and its 10,000 or so farmers um, are responsible for about 20% of emissions. Um, so Fonterra's position on this is that we are amongst the lowest um, producers of methane in the world per uh, kilogram of milk solids, just as the red meat industry, beef and lamb says, well, the same for us in the red meat industry because of our pastoral agriculture. Well, that's fine. Um, And implicitly, they're saying, so we don't have to do much. It's up to the uh, other farmers around the world to catch up with us. Um, uh, And so we can just afford to incrementally chip away at our methane, you know, 1% a Mm -hmm. year. Those guys will never catch up with us. (laughs) Well, first of all, uh, we don't have time on our side. (laughs) Secondly, farming's going off in a completely different direction. So, for example, we're seeing obviously far more food um, and very challenging startups to produce um, dairy products and indeed meat um, in ways that don't produce any methane at all. Um, You know, bio-brewing milk or using plants or whatever. That's one thing. But the second thing is um, farmers, still farming animals, are doing lots of things elsewhere. So, for example, um, there is a... um, uh, a, f- 
a Finnish dairy company um, that is committed to being carbon neutral um, by 2035. Now, it's easier for it because it keeps its cows indoors almost half the year because it's so cold in Finland. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but a, a better example perhaps is Nestle, which is the world's largest food company and incidentally Fonterra's largest customer, which has very ambitious targets um, to reduce the emissions of um, its products by um I think 50% by 2030. I think I might be slightly um, overcooking that one, um, but certainly be carbon neutral by 2050. And mm. it's working very hard with its um, small scale farmers around the world to achieve that. I know it's talking to Fonterra, um, but I don't know what it's saying to Fonterra. So that's one of my <laughs> journalistic goals is to find out quite what Nestle as Fonterra's largest customer is saying to them about um, Fonterra's emissions. But that's the problem. Here in New Zealand, um, uh, our meat and dairy industry uh, are being far too complacent because they say we're already best in the world. Mm. It's up to the rest of the world to catch up with us. But the world's going off in a different direction. So thus they will become stranded assets uh, if they don't um, respond. The common element here between Zed and Fonterra is this reliance on the status quo and almost a, a a willfulness around uh, believing that tweaking the status quo will continue to return uh, to investors and owners. And would you say paying lip service to a transition to a low carbon future or, or is that being too cruel? Um, it is a lip service. Um, I, I think a better way of explaining it though is they think they're in control of the rate of change, which they aren't. Um, First of all, the climate (laughs) is dictating the rate of change, not their competitors. And and Fonterra can't control the climate, nor can Zed. Um, But more importantly, there are competitors for both of them um, that understand the climate is setting the pace of change here and the scale of the goals uh, and are responding. So mm. they've got some competitors that are onto this. So this is what it essentially comes down to. We've got the vast, vast majority of companies and their boards and their executives and you know all their staff and a large part of their customers too, sitting there saying, okay, well, this is where we're at today. And yeah, we know we've got to do all this stuff out there. And this is kind of the way and pace at which we can do it. And indeed, um, Zed's Investor Day um, presentation was classically that. So the um, our Climate Change Commission has a demonstration pathway by which um, emissions from petrol and diesel need to come down by, well, it reckons they can come down by about a third by 2035, but says saying, oh, no, you know, our analysis shows it can only come down about 20%. Um, So that's Zed saying, oh, no, the way we read things, it's all right. We've got this extra time. We won't do as much. Hmm. But here's the really, really, really fundamental thing, and I'm going to write a column about this in due course. That absolutely won't work. The only thing that works, and we see it time and again with the real trailblazers here, they understand what the task is and how short the time frame is, and they commit to delivering on that. Um, and they have no idea 
how they're going to do that. They know they don't have the technology. Um, they know time is very limited. They know they need more capital. They know they need more partners. But having set that goal and being very determined to do that, when then the money and the technology and the ideas and the partners, um, if you're doing this well, emerge. Hmm. Um, and it's really important to just absolutely turn this around and say, no, we've got to get to one and a half degrees. This is all the carbon left we can expend. That means yes. we've got to do this amazing thing. We have no idea what how we're going to do it, but that's what we're committed to. I mean, that's jolly scary, but you know, I, I would argue failure to do that is even scarier in terms of what happens to the climate. We're focused on two laggards. Uh, tell us about the leaders. Are there examples of large, I'm not talking about small businesses or startups here, I'm talking about large organisations with a large footprint that have or are in the process of making this transition to the kind of, uh, I suppose, scale and speed that is required? Uh, yes, and um, I, I've mentioned Nestle already. Um, one should always be very, very sceptical about um, the climate targets that companies set themselves and their very impressive um, strategy documents and PowerPoint presentations about the, how they're going to get there. However, um, I've known Nestle for a very long time. Um, before I came to New Zealand, my last job at the Financial Times in London was consumer industries editor, and Nestle was one of the companies I wrote about. So um, it was an important and wonderful part of my job that I would spend a couple of days in Veve, the Nestle galactic headquarters in Switzerland, um, every year having those sorts of discussions about what the long-term future was. And um, so knowing the Nestle culture very well um, and how it runs itself as a business, which I think has only got better over the years, although obviously no longer anywhere near as close to the company as I was, um, I do believe that they will deliver um, on their goals. Um, and a lot of it is about incremental change. So um, there's a big emphasis, for example, on, uh, well, I should say speedy incremental change, um, 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 working with 500,000 farmers um, around the world on regenerative agricultural practices, um, which seek to not just reduce the negative impact um, of farming um, on ecosystems and climate, but actually farm in ways that help rebuild the ecosystems and, and uh, take the pressure off the climate. And um, it's got a multi-billion dollar uh, commitment to do that work. Then in, um, let's take steel industry, for example, because that's a prodigious emitter of emissions. Um, there is a Swedish steel company which has developed a process um, to do that smelting of steel using um, carbon, uh, sorry, using hydrogen, um, not coking coal. And uh, it's shipping its first steel. And Volvo um, has committed to making a model of its cars from that um, essentially zero carbon steel. Um, so um, then in um, the oil industry, for example, um, there is a very impressive um, series of companies. I, I'm just picking on the UK because I've been tending to focus there recently because I, uh, in terms of 
these big shifts in business and climate because it's obviously far easier from language wise to access what's going on but i think the british are gen gen genuinely onto it so there is um, um a, a jet zero council um in the uk with about eight players i think and the government involved too um in um making sustainable aviation fuel. And uh, one of the players in that is Lanzatech, which is a name you might rec recognize, which was a wonderful new, um, startup here in um, New Zealand. Oh, crikey. Um, now about 14, 15 years ago, um, Sean Simpson and colleagues, and then went to um, Chicago um, in 2014 to fast forward its development. And it's um, it started its technology, testing it at the Glenbrook Steel Mill here in Auckland uh, to capture carbon monoxide from the um, steel mill's chimneys, bubbling that through water, um, feeding um, that carbon to bespoke bacteria which it had developed and um, that then turned um, that into the building blocks of um, um, synthetic fuels and synthetic plastics. So it was a biological way to create um, those carbon compounds. So it's got a, a um, sister company that it's brought investors into called Lanza Jet, um, which is in very involved in a UK project with British Airways. Um, and they're going to get there. Um, and uh, another example uh, as an oil company is Neste Oil, uh, a Finnish company, um, which has a Singaporean refinery which takes tallow from New Zealand meatworks and turns it into sustainable fuels. Neste Oil is uh, one of the largest producers of um, sustainable aviation fuel. And, and I, I need to check this. I I'm not sure they use the tallow for that. I think they might be using other things. But anyway, they're using it for synthetic um, petrol and diesel uh, or bios. Um, sorry, I need to be clear on the definition here, bio versus synthetic. Bio is you're um, creating a biological product um, that behaves like mineral diesel, whereas synthetic is that you are trying to replicate the molecular structure of a jet fuel um, um, using the sort of Lanzatec process. Um, but anyway, so that's that's Neste Oil. Um, another one of my favorite companies is uh, used to revel in the name of Dong, D-O-N-G, which stood for Danish Oil and Natural Gas. And it was um, founded by the Danish government in 1972 um, to exploit the newly discovered um, oil and gas reserves in the, North, in the Danish sector of the North Sea. Well, um, thanks to a bit of a push from the Danish government and others, um, it's essentially out of fossil fuels and is now the largest developer of offshore wind projects in the world with something like a 29% market share. So what keeps me going <laughs> uh, is deep fascination by co with companies like that um, that absolutely understand what the challenge is and have grasped it with both hands. Um, and... Um, when I need a bit of a pick-me-up, I go off and have a look at those. What pressure could be applied to our businesses to speed up their transition? Will it be a rise in the carbon price? Will it be government pressure? Will it be shareholder pressure? What do you think would be the main levers that could be used to take climate transition more seriously among New Zealand businesses? 
It will be all of those things and many more. I, I don't think there's any magic recipe um, other than to be utterly focused, um, first of all, on the science of climate um, and what we need to do and how short the timeframes are. And when we keep those absolutely as our, as our guiding star, our pole star, um, then all of those other things will come into play. And, you know, I, um, and each has its own role to play, but they've got to be um, seriously geared up. And, and we've got to find other levers and encouragement as, as well. I, I'm sorry, that's mm. not much of a, a shopping list or a formula for making this happen. Um, but to me, the absolute key to this is for us all to understand what's at stake and what we you know, knowing what the ultimate goal is we have to achieve in whatever the field is. So we've got to be able to produce milk in ways um, that doesn't produce greenhouse gases and regenerates ecosystems because uh, biodiversity loss and ecosystem system collapse um, is the twin crisis of the climate crisis. Mm. So our twin interdependent crises are climate collapse and ecosystem collapse, climate breakdown and ecosystem collapse. Um, and so whatever we're doing or whatever product we're using or, or whatever um, practice we have, we, we have to say, well, what's the ultimate deeply, deeply sustainable thing we need to do here um, to solve that? And, and that's, that's what we've got to keep firmly in mind. And then when we're that committed and we give each other lots of encouragement, but we also tell it like it is to each other, um, then we can, we'll get there. You, you use very inclusive language often, Rod, um, but isn't the point of this particular podcast today that as individuals, as consumers, we have agency, but it's limited agency. What we've talked about uh, are 9,300 companies that have 20% of um, emissions at their disposal. In, in, in New Zealand, we've talked about two companies with 30% of the emissions uh, under their watch. Isn't the point not so much a consumer decision? It's not so much a we as a they. Um, no, I still think it's we. Um, particularly in a small country um, where there's very few degrees of separation. Um, but when when I say it's we, it's not some sort of holding of hands and, and just sort of, you know, trying to bring everybody along the journey. It's mm. about a critical mass of people and views really changing the debate. So that's why I think it's incredible. Well, I sort of liken my job <laughs> as a, business journalist. I, I'm, a, I'm a hybrid sheepdog. I, I'm both the strong-eyed dog and the hunter way. So I'm standing there saying, you know, do not come this way. And I'm also the hunter way that's, you know, yapping around the back, you know, rounding up the <laughs> cattle or the sheep off in a different direction. Um, so uh, it's, it's both. Um, but ultimately, it is us. Um, you know, um, the people who work in the companies I mentioned are our um, friends, neighbors, um, family members, um, you know, all the rest. Um, so that's why it is inclusive. Uh, I, but, 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 you know, we've got to be unbelievably clear, um, yet helpful to each other. Hmm. 
Uh, Rod, we will find your work uh, at Newsroom these days, uh, often uh, rarely behind the paywall, I think, which is uh, which is great to see. Um, are you busy elsewhere or are you hanging up your spurs? I, I noticed that you gracefully uh, passed on the baton uh, to other colleagues on Radio New Zealand. Uh, yep. Where else can we find Rod Orham talking on thinking? Um, on Newsroom, my column appears on Friday mornings on um, Newsroom Pro, which is the um, subscription side of our website. And I would obviously encourage people to subscribe because it um, it um, helps keep us going as journalists. But then uh, the column migrates on Sunday morning to the free side of our site, newsroom.co.nz. And uh, of course, you can still um, click to make a little donation or whatever. So thank you. That's uh, very, very important. I, I very much uh, appreciate that. The um, uh, the other weekly commitment I have is that News Talk ZB on Friday evenings about 6.15, um, something I've been doing for 25 years almost, first of all wow. with Larry Williams for many, many years, and then now with Heather Duplessis-Allen. And, um, and then about every third or fourth week on Thursday mornings on BFM, which I enjoy hugely um, because mm. of the liveness of the audience and the, and mm. the people there. Mm. Um, but that's pretty much it. I, I do do, um, you know, I contribute longer pieces to things like collections uh, or, or books. So, for example, Helen Clark edited a book on climate in Aotearoa, um, published by um, Alan and Unwin in April, and I contributed mm -hmm. a chapter in that um, on um, the climate opportunity, huge opportunity for New Zealand farming, but setting it in a global context about what on earth mm -hmm. does farming mean, because land use farming and food production is the largest single driver of climate change. I mean, it's bigger than the oil and gas sector and everything else. Mm. And it's mm. really important. So I, I also do that. And then I'm being slightly incautious here um, because um, I am hoping to go to COP in Glasgow, um, the, the next UN climate negotiations, which run from <laughs> October 31st to November the 12th. And you, I, you may I've never got, come back. Well, no, I, I've got all the necessary things in place, like a, a <laughs> slot in quarantine. It took me a month of interrogating the MIQ website 10 times a day before I finally lucked into getting a November date. Anyway, the point is that um, I'm planning at COP um, to do podcasts, not writing, because I think it, people will accept um, a slightly... Um, less polished podcast um, if I can do that every day because I'm a really mm -hmm. slow writer. So the idea of sitting down every day to, you know, write, you know, a thousand words it would be very hard. So that will mm -hmm. be on Newsroom. Um, and uh, so Newsroom is the best place to find me uh, is the long mm -hmm. and the short of all that. Fantastic. Uh, Rod, thanks so much for your time and for your mahi in this space. We, uh, we really appreciate it and um, keep going. I will. <laughs>
I mean, at some point I'm going to have to hang this up because I'm dead serious about the World Masters Games. One of my heroes is a retired Parisian firefighter who was a fantastic cyclist who just died at the age of 105. And he was still, <laughs> he was still setting uh, records on the track, on the velodrome, uh, well past 100. So <laughs> at some point I'm going to have to give up this journalism lark because I really, really, really want to concentrate on being an absolute extraordinary centurion cyclist fantastic well 106 all bust lovely talking yeah. to you rod thanks for your time okay see ya thanks for listening to this climate business i hope you enjoyed the program there are more episodes as well as notes and blogs on our website thisclimatebusiness.com I'm Vincent Herringer, and if you know someone who deserves to be interviewed on our show, email me, vincent at thisclimatebusiness.com, or find me on Twitter, vherringer, that's two E's, one R. Meanwhile, I'll be back same time next week, and no hurrah.